First Timothy chapter 3. The text, which we will not reread, is the very last verse, verse 16. This is a true saying. If a man desire the office of a bishop, he desireth a good work. A bishop, then, must be blameless. The husband of one wife, vigilant, sober, of good behavior, given to hospitality, apt to teach. Not given to wine, no striker, not greedy of filthy lucre, but patient, not a brawler, not covetous, one that ruleth well his own house, having his children in subjection with all gravity. For if a man know not how to rule his own house, how shall he take care of the church of God? Not a novice, lest being lifted up with pride, he fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must have a good report of them which are without, lest he fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. Likewise, must the deacons be grave, not double-tongued, not given to much wine, not greedy of filthy lucre, holding the mystery of the faith in a pure conscience. And let these also first be proved, then let them use the office of a deacon, being found blameless. Even so must their wives be grave, not slanderers, sober, faithful in all things. Let the deacons be the husbands of one wife, ruling their children and their own houses well. For they that have used the office of deacon well purchase to themselves a good degree and great boldness in the faith which is in Christ Jesus. These things write I unto thee, hoping to come unto thee shortly. But if I tarry long, that thou mayest know how thou oughtest to behave thyself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh, justified in the Spirit, seen of angels, preached unto the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up into glory. This is the inspired and infallible Word of God. <clears throat> As announced, the text for the sermon is verse 16. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, this first epistle of Paul to Timothy is his pastoral epistle in which he teaches the young pastor how things ought to go in the instituted church of the Lord Jesus Christ, and that the goal in and of the church is godliness. As important as sound doctrine is, and no spiritually minded man would ever minimize sound doctrine. Sound doctrine is not an end in itself. The goal in the church is not merely that orthodox propositions be sounded forth from the pulpit or even that 
orthodox truth be lodged in the minds of the worshipers, but that the truth be carried by the Holy Spirit deep into the heart so that then out of the heart comes a life of godliness. The apostle opens the epistle writing at the end of verse 3, chapter 1, charge some that they teach no other doctrine, neither give heed to fables and endless genealogies which minister questions rather than godly edifying which is in faith. Teach sound doctrine which then accords with godliness. The goal of the office bearers in the church, and the focus is on them here in chapter 3, and the goal of all of the members in the church is godliness. That we know the truth of the gospel, that it abides in our hearts, that our faith is strengthened, And the more our faith is strengthened in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, the more we bring forth and live in godliness. That's the goal, because when God redeems His church out of this ungodly world, and He takes His church and consecrates her unto Himself, He conforms the members of the church unto the image of the Lord Jesus Christ, that they might walk in godliness for the ultimate goal of the praise of God of His name and His grace. And so orthodoxy, that's right doctrine, for the sake of orthopraxy, that's right practice, right conduct, and that ultimately for the sake of doxology, the praise of the name of God and His glorious grace. Godliness. That's underscored in 1 Timothy Godliness. And so important is godliness that after the apostle establishes in the immediately preceding verse, verse 15, that the church is the pillar and the ground of God's truth in the world. That's verse 15. The next verse, which is our text, begins with and. And this text will tell us what is that one great truth that the church holds up as the pillar and ground of God's truth in the world. And it is the mystery of godliness. Let's take as our theme this morning, the great mystery of godliness, considering first the mystery of godliness, second, the greatness of it, and third, the faithfulness to it. Godliness, the Apostle states, and without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. Godliness is simply the whole Christian life as it's lived unto God. As it's lived according to the Word of God. As it's lived out of a heart of love for God. Godliness is eschewing that which is evil and living the whole of one's life in thought, word, and deed unto God. Godliness describes the whole of the Christian life. In chapter 2, verse 2, the Apostle states, pray for kings and all that are in authority that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness. He'll say something very similar in his second epistle, chapter 3, verse 12, yea, all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall 
suffer persecution. He'll make specific application back here in chapter 2, the preceding chapter, where he addresses women in the church and calls them not to adorn themselves with all kinds of beautiful, expensive, external apparel, but to adorn them their whole life, that it be adorned with godliness. Godliness. Does not the Reformed faith underscore the importance of godliness in Lord's Day 32 of the Heidelberg Catechism when it teaches us that one of the benefits of good works is that I, by my godly conversation, may be able to gain others to Christ. And does not the Reformed faith underscore the importance of godliness when it teaches in the 61st article of the church order that none shall be admitted to the Lord's Supper except those who have made a confession of the Reformed religion and are reputed to be of a godly walk. Godliness. The whole of the Christian life. And obviously it doesn't refer merely to an outward appearance of morality because anyone can go to church twice on Sunday. Any woman could dress in modest apparel. Any Man, woman, young person can live under the authority of the civil magistrate and pay their taxes to the king while being a hypocrite and having only a form of godliness. 2 Timothy 3 verse 5 says of some, having a form of godliness but denying the power thereof from such turn away. So godliness is the whole of the Christian life as it's lived out of a true heart of faith that loves God, lives according to the Word of God, and lives unto God in the praise of His grace. Godliness. Now, the Apostle is teaching us in this text something about the mystery of godliness. And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. The biblical word mystery simply refers to something that's hidden. Something covered. It doesn't refer to some inexplicable enigma that no one would ever be able to figure out. It refers to something hidden. It's something that can be known. Not necessarily comprehended, but it can be known only for the time being. It is covered. If you buy a gift and you put it in a box and you wrap it in paper, now you have for someone a mystery. Not because the content of the box is something impossible for anyone ever to understand, but because it's been covered. It's hidden. Scripture teaches that the mystery of God is something God announces, something that can be known, but for now, He has covered it up. Mystery. And the great mystery of the whole of Scripture is God's plan to save the whole world of elect Jews and elect Gentiles in the person of His Son, Jesus Christ. That's the great mystery. It was hid through the old dispensation, although the Israelites, they had an idea of it through the types and the shadows, but it wasn't until Pentecost that God opened up, as it were, the box and revealed this is the great mystery, a universal salvation in the Son of my love, the Lord Jesus Christ. And then He came to Paul and said, Paul, I've called you. I've appointed you from your mother's womb. Now you take the unfolding of this mystery and you go into all the Gentile nations and proclaim it 
as the gospel. Colossians 1, 25 and 26, Paul says, Whereof I made a minister according to the dispensation of God which is given to me for you to fulfill the word of God, even the mystery which hath been hid from ages and from generations, but is now made manifest to his saints. One element, one element of this grand mystery of the unsearchable riches of our Lord Jesus Christ is what this text calls the mystery of godliness. The mystery of godliness is the source and the power of godliness hidden, covered. Remember, 2 Timothy 3, verse 5 speaks of those who have a form of godliness, but they deny the power thereof. There's something called the power of godliness. And now picture a little cubed-shaped jewelry box. And inside that box is not something physical and visible and tangible, but it's a power, a source, an otherworldly, heavenly, spiritual power. It is, for example, the power whereby a bishop, an elder in the church, can be blameless, and the husband of one wife, and vigilant, and sober, and of good behavior, and so on. Tremendous spiritual power. It's the power of godliness. And the mystery of godliness is that power of godliness that's been hidden. It's been covered. And now the great question through the ages is, what is the source and the power of godliness? And that became a question from the moment that Adam transgressed the good commandment of God, and under the judgment of God, Adam died spiritually and became ungodly and brought forth a human race that is ungodly, so that by nature there is none who is godly, no, not one, There is none who has the desire to be godly. None has the power to be godly. None has the right to be godly. All deserve condemnation because of their ungodliness. So how can it possibly be that a man, that a woman, that even a child can be godly? What is the source and the power of godliness? Well, there is in the text what is called the mystery. The mystery of godliness. And that's the source. That's the power of godliness that's been covered up, as it were, it's in the box. And what's in the box? Well, according to his counsel and in the fullness of time, God opened up that box. When he opened up the womb of the Virgin Mary and brought forth His only begotten Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. A person is the source and the power of godliness. A person. And that's the teaching of the text with everything that it says after the colon. And without without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness, colon, God manifest in the flesh. That's Jesus Justified in the Spirit, that's Jesus. Seen of angels, that's Jesus. 
preached unto the Gentiles, that's Jesus, believed on in the world, that's Jesus, and received up into glory, that is our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus, as it were, was in the box through all of the ages, hidden by God. And Israel had an idea of what was in that box, just like you do when someone hands you a little cube-shaped jewelry box. It's a gift, and you know it's not a bottle of wine, and you know it's not a beautiful decorative wall hanging, you know it's a ring. There's a ring in here. But you don't know exactly what kind of ring it is. And so in the Old Testament, the Israelites had an idea of what was in the box through all of the types and the shadows and the pictures. But it wasn't until God opened the box and he began to open the box when Mary brought forth her firstborn son. Then God said, see, my people and Mary, this is the great mystery of godliness. And the The wise men came from afar, and God said, Behold, the great mystery of godliness. And then to aged Simeon and Anna, Look, the great mystery of godliness, so that you, Simeon, can say, Now mine eyes have beheld thy salvation. But it was especially at Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit was poured out, that God fully revealed to His people so that they could understand the mystery of godliness in this sin-cursed world of ungodly men and women and children. How is it possible? How could it ever be that anyone could be godly? There needs to be the source and the power of godliness. And it's Christ who by His Spirit comes into your heart and He lives and abides within you forever. Now we have the church as the pillar and ground of God's truth in the world, holding up God's truth above all the synagogues and the mosques and the temples and kings and palaces and kingdoms. And what's the one great truth that the church holds up until the last day of history? It is Christ, the Lord Jesus Christ, as the mystery of godliness. Great, says the Apostle. Great is the mystery of godliness. There are six statements in the second half of the text, each having an important verb, but six brief statements that explain to us the greatness of this mystery, why it is so amazing. And these six statements follow one another basically in an order that aligns, for the most part, chronologically with the life of Christ. So we have number one, God manifest in the flesh. That's the incarnation. Number two, justified in the spirit. That's the cross and especially the resurrection of Christ. Number three, scene of angels. That happened right after the resurrection. Number four, preached to the Gentiles and believed on in the world. That happened between the resurrection. And then number six, the ascension being received up into glory. Now number four and number five, preached to the Gentiles, believed on in the world. Those two actually occur after the ascension, and they're still occurring today. 
But the Apostle takes those two and he puts them before number six, the ascension being received up into glory for two reasons. Number one, because it was between the resurrection and the ascension that Christ commissioned his apostles to go out and preach him to the Gentiles that he may, may be believed on in the world. And number two, the apostle puts them before the ascension because he wants the ascension last as the climax so that we have these two bookends. Number one, God manifest in the flesh, incarnation. And then number six, the conclusion, received up into glory. Now let's look at them. Number one, God manifest in the flesh. This refers to the incarnation of the second person of the Trinity when he took the flesh of the Virgin Mary. And this one statement establishes against all heresies these simple fundamental truths about Jesus. Three of them. Number one, he's God. You all know that, right? And you boys and girls, Jesus your Savior is God. And here the Bible says so. He is God manifest in the flesh. Number two, He's a man, a real man, for He is God manifest in the flesh. And number three, He's one person. Our Lord Jesus Christ having a God nature and a man nature. That is, a divine nature and a human nature. God manifest in the flesh. In order for us to be redeemed unto godliness, we need a Savior who has flesh so that He can make a sacrifice for us on the altar. But we also need a Savior who's God so that His sacrifice is of infinite value. Jesus, God manifest in the flesh. So great. So inconceivably great is the mystery of godliness that God was manifest in the flesh. The flesh here does not refer to sinful flesh. It refers to the whole human nature, the body-soul constitution of a man, but from the point of view of its weakness, its humiliation, its feeble character. For the Bible says that all flesh is as grass. That's all we are as flesh. We're nothing but grass. And now here we are by nature ungodly. We're like little blades of grass. How will we ever be able to reach all the way up into the highest heavens and lay a hold of the power of godliness that we may be godly? How will we even have the desire to be godly? We little blades of grass so corrupt in ourselves. Here's the great mystery of godliness. The second person of the Trinity, the great God, infinite, eternal, transcendent God, God was manifest in our flesh, in our feeble flesh, yet without sin. We could not be godly except God come into our flesh. God, God is always first. And God is first here too. God into our flesh. Second, justified in the Spirit. Jesus, justified in the Spirit. This means that He was declared 
publicly to be righteous in the Spirit's raising Him from the dead. Christ was not only born into our human flesh, but He took our guilt. All the guilt of our ungodliness, He legally bore that as our head in the covenant, and so God declared Him guilty. As He was hanging on that cross, God declared guilty, and God's curse came upon Him. But not only that, all mankind declared Him unjustly so. They declared Him to be guilty. They said He's a blasphemer. He's a Sabbath desecrator. He's a seditious fellow. He's a, a malefactor. So they nailed Him to that cross and they all said, guilty. And He dies and He goes into the grave. But on the first day of the week, and that we commemorate today as we do every Sunday, on the first day of the week, God raised Jesus. Usually the Scripture says God raised Him. Sometimes the Scripture says He raised Himself. Or better, He Himself says, I raised Myself. Destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up again. John 10, I am the Good Shepherd. I have the power to lay down My life and to take it up again. But sometimes the Scripture says and that it does here. The Spirit raised Him. We don't often think of that, but the Spirit, as the living breath of God, was breathed into the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea, and the Spirit quickened Jesus again, now unto a new heavenly immortal life. Peter teaches that in 1 Peter 3, verse 18, when he says by inspiration, "...for Christ also hath once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust." that He might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit. And now here, when the text says He was justified in the Spirit, when the Spirit raised Jesus from the dead, that was His justification. That was the public declaration of His righteousness as He came victoriously out of that grave. He was no longer condemned guilty by God. Righteous with His own righteousness and having paid for our sins, He obtained a righteousness for us. And the Holy Spirit, when He raised Jesus from the dead, He testified within Jesus' own Spirit, Thou art righteous with Thy own inherent righteousness. And out of the grave He came justified in the Spirit. So great is the mystery of godliness that for you and for me to be godly, God must not only come into human flesh, but the Son of God must be condemned for our transgressions and raised from the dead, being justified in the Spirit. Third, scene of angels. So great is the mystery of godliness that Jesus was seen of angels. Not only seen of men, but of angels. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 5-8 through 8 says that Christ was seen of Cephas. He was seen of the twelve. He was seen of five hundred. He was seen of James. He was seen of Paul as one born out of due time. And that verb seen is the same verb in the text here. So that in the Gospels, though we're not told of the specific details in the history 
although we do know there were two angels at the tomb early Sunday morning, were not told of the historical incident. At some point after his resurrection, Jesus not only appeared to all those names mentioned in 1 Corinthians 15, but he appeared unto the angels, the angels of heaven, so that they could see him. And how wonderful for them. Because we're told in 1 Peter chapter 1 that they want to know. They too want to know what is in that little box, what's been hid as a mystery through all the ages. Peter says they desire to look into the things of our salvation. Of course they do. They were there at the beginning. They witnessed the rebellion of Satan, one of their own, and how one-third of his fellow angels followed him and became demons in rebellion against God. They watched history unfold and how the devil went down to tempt Adam and Eve and how through the sin of Adam the whole human race became ungodly and they themselves want to know how is it ever possible for anyone anywhere ever to be godly. As soon as he arose from the dead... He showed himself unto men and unto angels so that the whole universe in the heavens above and in the earth beneath might know what is the great mystery of godliness. He was seen of angels. Four and five go together. Preached unto the Gentiles and believed on in the world. When God finally, as it were, opened up that box and revealed the great mystery, he said, Paul, now you take it and go preach it to the Gentiles. And wherever that gospel of Jesus was preached to the Gentiles, God worked faith in all those who were appointed unto salvation. The preaching of the gospel and then the working of faith. And wherever there's faith being worked, there's always the fruit of godliness. Now you go into the nation somewhere, You go somewhere where the gospel has not been and you will not find godliness. You might find the form of godliness. Go to Tibet and see some Tibetan Buddhists in their compassion and humility. You might see the form of godliness, but they deny the power thereof. They're not actually godly. You will not find any godliness where the gospel has not been Where the gospel does not go, there's no working of faith. And where there's no working of faith, there's no fruit of godliness. How can anyone ever be godly, whether here or in the British Isles or Singapore or Metro Manila? How can anyone be godly? We need the gospel of Jesus Christ to be preached unto the Gentiles. And where that gospel is preached, God works faith in the Word. Where there's faith in the Word, there is the fruit of godliness in men and women and the children of the covenant. So great is the mystery of godliness that there is now a universal salvation of elect Jews and Gentiles throughout the world. Six, and finally, Jesus was received up into glory. Here down below, it's a veil of tears. Is it not? It's a veil of tears and it's the shadow of death And there's so much sorrow and corruption and sin. But up, glory, the glory of God. 
And so great is the mystery of godliness as high as the heavens are above the earth that the Son of God came down into our flesh. And then one day was exalted when God received him up into glory, the ascension, crowned with glory and honor. And there he is now our mediator at God's right hand. And it's through him that we pray, Lord God, We're so sorry for all of our ungodliness. Forgive us. Sanctify us. Make us godly for Jesus' sake. Our mediator at thy right hand in glory. Great, so great is the mystery of godliness. And all of this, as it were, was covered up, was hidden, until God revealed it to His people. Jesus, the great mystery of godliness. Received up into glory until He comes back on the clouds of glory. This faithful Savior keeps His church, the pillar and ground of truth in the world, He keeps His church faithful to this mystery. That's the teaching of the text in its opening words, and without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. There's no controversy here. There's no debate here. There's nothing contested here in the church of Jesus Christ. Without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. Christ sees to it that His church in the world as the pillar and ground of the truth, is faithful to Him as the great mystery of godliness so that there is no controversy. Now, should there be a controversy, Christ will expose what is the cause of that controversy so that it can be identified and rooted out. Because without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. So Christ keeps His church faithful to this mystery. That means four things for you and me this morning. Number one, because there's no controversy here, the church of Jesus Christ says no. Number one, to antinomianism. Antinomianism, which literally means against the law is not merely a controversy against the law of God. Antinomianism, in the deepest sense, has a controversy with Jesus, who is the great mystery of godliness. Because antinomianism asserts that it really doesn't matter how you live. It's really not that important that you live in godliness. And you ought not to call emphatically call the people of God to faithfulness and godliness and a life of good works and holiness because that could be a threat to the grace of God. As long as a man says, I'm justified, doesn't matter how he lives. He may be a brawler in church office. She may be a most immodest. She may be a harlot woman in the church. It doesn't matter how she lives As long as she says, I'm justified. I'm justified. doesn't matter how you live. In fact, the more ungodly you are, 
the better it is because then the more the grace of God can abound and forgive all of your ungodliness. So let sin abound that grace may abound. Antinomianism has a controversy with Jesus who is the great mystery of godliness. But the great mystery of godliness is without controversy. And so Christ sees to it that should antinomianism appear, the church will identify it and say, no, out, be gone, and keep holding up Christ, the great mystery of godliness. Secondly, because there's no controversy here, the church says no to any form of salvation by godliness. The teaching of salvation by godliness has a controversy with Jesus as the great mystery of godliness. Wherever it's taught that salvation is by the law, that you can earn your salvation by your life of godliness, well then the teaching of the text is overthrown and you actually have to rewrite the text this way. And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. I was born. I was justified in the Spirit. People and even angels saw me. People talked about me all throughout the world. And I went up into glory. But will you notice that the text says nothing about you? The great mystery of godliness doesn't say anything about you or me. It's the Gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. It says, God was manifest in the flesh justified in the Spirit, seen of angels, preached unto the Gentiles, believed on in the world, and received up into glory. The teaching of salvation by your godliness has a controversy with Christ. But the great mystery of godliness is without controversy. And so Christ sees to it that His church says no to salvation by godliness and keeps holding Him up as the great mystery of godliness. Third, because Christ keeps His church faithful to this mystery, there's no controversy here so that the church says no to the world. The ungodly world. Does not the world have a controversy with Christ as the mystery of godliness? The world hates godliness. And if you and your Christian friends live in the world and live like the world, and you dress like the world, and you talk like the world, and you engage in recreation like the world, and your whole lifestyle matches that of the world, and you talk like the world, you'll have a lot of friends. And you'll be very popular. But if you live godly, like Joseph in Potiphar's house, no. If you live godly, like Daniel and his three friends in Babylon, we will not. You will quickly discover the controversy that the ungodly world has with godliness. They mock it, they ridicule it, and ultimately, 2 Peter 3, verse 12, they persecute all those who live godly. The world has a controversy with godliness. And therefore, because Christ makes His church faithful to this mystery, should worldliness appear in the church, The church, through the leadership of the elders, will say, no, out, 
be gone. And the great mystery of godliness is held up. Fourth, and finally, because there's no controversy here, we say no, not only to antinomianism, salvation by godliness and the world, but we say no to our own personal belittling of godliness. Sometimes you have your own controversy with godliness, and so do I. Sometimes we make excuses for and we ignore our own ungodly lifestyle, our attitudes, our words, our actions, as if a little gossipy, gossiping here, or a little bit of jealousy there, or a snide remark to the spouse in marriage here, or this little sin there, it really isn't a big deal. And we dismiss all the evidences of ungodliness in our own life. Or we start sliding into dead orthodoxy. And that's always the great threat. That we have this knowledge of the Reformed faith and that we're taught the Reformed faith from the time we're little boys and girls in catechism and at school and at home and in the preaching of the Word. And we amass this grand knowledge and we love the sound of this massive, coherent, systematic superstructure of the Reformed faith with all these doctrines and how they all fit together and we love the sound of it, but though it all exists in our intellect, there's this massive disconnect. Between what we know intellectually in the mind and what's in the heart. So that it's possible to have a very impressive knowledge of the whole of the Reformed faith and be able very articulately to argue every doctrine and yet not love God. Or your neighbor. And when we go that way, we're striking up a controversy with Christ as the great mystery of godliness. And the Word of God says, repent and find forgiveness in the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let us not have a controversy with the mystery of godliness. Godliness is amazing. Now, we know it's true. We know it's true that we only have a very small beginning of this godliness. And that's such a struggle for us. We do want to love God perfectly with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength, but we don't. We only have a small beginning. But that little principle of godliness within, that's something. And that's amazing. And don't belittle that. Let's not have a controversy with godliness and don't take for granted when a member of the church grows up, when a little child of the church grows up godly in an ungodly world with parents who have an ungodly sinful nature and with all the forces, pressures, and temptations of sin that a little boy or a little girl grows up in the church and he loves God. 
And he wants to read the Bible. And he prays before he goes to bed. And he sings the songs of Zion. And his heart does break when he's been naughty. He feels all kinds of guilt when he's disobeyed father or mother. And he does want to please them. He does say, I'm sorry. That's amazing. How could it possibly be that a child in an ungodly world could have that seed of godliness? Well, that's Christ by His Spirit in the child. And then you take the children of the covenant and men and women, young and old alike, who have the principle of godliness. That's amazing. That you should ever even have one office bearer, even one, who's blameless, who loves his wife, who's vigilant, who's sober, who's of good behavior, who's given to hospitality, who's apt to teach. That's amazing. Christ. The great mystery of godliness in us by His Spirit. And the Apostle says, without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. And so only Christ can keep His church faithful. And may He keep us you and me, may He keep us faithful so that we keep holding Him and Him alone up as the great mystery of godliness. Amen. Let us pray. Father in Heaven, we bow down before Thee in gratitude for Thy Word through the Apostle Paul to Timothy and the saints in Ephesus long ago. Thy word is inspired, infallible, and trustworthy. We read it 2,000 years later. We expound it in the worship service. And now we pray that the Spirit may take that word and plant it deep within us. That as we go forth on the rest of this Lord's Day and in the new week, we may strive to walk in conformity to Thy word. Make us godly, O God, and one day perfect us as Thou hast promised to do in life everlasting. Now go with us and comfort us, edify us. In Jesus' name do we pray. Amen.